Hey, Concavity listeners, we have a very special bonus episode for you today. What do you think David Foster Wallace was really like in a tennis match? Now, in this bonus episode, you are invited to listen to a tennis commentary of a fictional match played between David Foster Wallace and Martin Amos. This audio piece was a part of our recent David Foster Wallace conference in 2023 held in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. It was written and presented by literary scholar Saul Leslie. And the production also features commentary by fictional Wimbledon champion and writer Elsa Canetti, voiced here by Wendy Liu. And it features a guest courtside appearance from the literary academic Becky Carver. Hopefully, this will give you a sense of what it would be like if Amos and Wallace really did play against one another. As for who is ultimately triumphant, you'll have to listen to find out. So place your bets, grab your seats, and listen in because the match is about to begin. Good afternoon and welcome back to Centre Court at Wimbledon for the writers' final. You join us again after that rain break where the two players had to leave the court while we waited for the downpour to stop. I'm glad to say it has. The umbrellas have been folded away and this final will shortly continue. I'm your commentator, Saul Leslie, and it's my pleasure to be joined by Elsa Canetti, former Wimbledon tennis champion, novelist, poet, literary critic. Elsa, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Saul. It's great to be here. So Elsa, can you tell our listeners a little bit about our two finalists, Martin Amis and David Foster Wallace, as they walk back onto centre court? Well, these two have worked really hard to get to the final. Martin Amis sailing through the first few rounds until he encountered a stubborn and competitive Terry Eagleton in the semis, having to really dig deep during the fifth set to get over the line. Maybe that fatigue will be something to exploit today, as the Brit did look tired. And David Foster Wallace, probably the favorite of today's crowd, really struggled, surprisingly, in the competition's early stages, struggling in that early match against old friends and opponent Jonathan Franzen, and was maybe a bit lucky that Franzen was forced to forfeit the match after a cruel knee injury. But looking ahead to the rest of today's match, it should be a good one. Absolutely, these two have a lot in common both on the court and in their writing. Wallace once told the journalist David Lipsky that of all the writer tennis players he'd like to hit against, he'd like to play against Amos. Well, Wallace has certainly got his wish today as both players take up position on the court. Amos waits a couple of metres beyond the baseline for the next Wallace serve to come. This one comes onto Amos's backhand, which is returned across court to Wallace, who reaches it and sends it back down the line to Amos, who is unable to get there in time and the point goes to Wallace. And we can have a look, Elsa, at that serve from Wallace on the slow motion replay. Yeah, so we can see the way that Wallace's serve isn't particularly powerful, but he's still able to win the point. And it reminds me of his description of the German players who were superstars in the 90s, like Boris Becker, who didn't just come up and hit an ace. Becker would hit a forcing serve that made the opponent, often McEnroe, hit a weak return that let him come into the net and put the next shot away. So everything is being thought of ahead where there is a strategy of using weaker technique to win. And we've seen that technique used very well just now. We certainly have, and that's often reflected in their writing styles, wouldn't you say? 15, 15. 
Certainly, yes. In an early essay about playing tennis in Tornado Alley, Wallace writes that his tennis game required him to think n shots ahead, that it was a bit like chess in that way. And also he writes that he used his preternatural gifts to compensate for not that much physical talent. In terms of his writing, if we think about his use or overuse of footnotes, or the maximalist sentences with their anxious quality, which don't conform very well to the breath, we can see how he's made virtues out of these perceived writerly deficiencies, where a seemingly weak or vulnerable sentiment draws the reader in closer that, so that he can produce an overpowering shot that wins the reader over. 1315 to Mr. Wallace. And what about Martin Amos? Well, for Amos, he's very overt in discussing writing style in terms of a tennis game. In describing James Joyce's talent, Amos uses the metaphor of the Irishman's champion game, pointing out that while Joyce was blessed with exquisite touch, with sumptuous feel, the drop shot that drops dead on the clay, what he lacked was any interest in his opponent. In other words, that Joyce lacked much appreciation for his readers. I think Wallace has elements of that too. I know that originally he wanted Infinite Jest to have the subtitle Failed Entertainment, as if signalling to the reader that what they're about to embark on would definitely be difficult. Wallace playing well here, pushing the British writer back and forth across the baseline. And Elsa, you've experienced Grand Slams yourself, and you must know about the pressures that they're both under. You mentioned earlier that this could be a moment maybe for Wallace to try and put some pressure on Martin Amis. It is, and what I like from Wallace is that he's jumping up and down. He needs to use the energy of the crowd. He needs to get them on his side because, you know, that can help you turn a match around. He can get the crowd on side and get under the skin of his opponent, particularly someone like Martin Amis who can be sensitive towards the crowd reaction as he lifts a racket to acknowledge that it was the net cord that won him that last point. But the nice thing about Amos is that he's changing his rhythm, he's serving onto the forehand side. Yeah, he got a little lucky with that volley, but he's keeping Wallace off balance. Amos' main issue to deal with today, other than the rain if it returns, is the age difference. Amos writes of his concern about trying to play tennis in the same way he used to as a younger man, describing how when you're older, the return comes over the net and you think, oh look, there's a ball coming over the net, instead of having a slightly anticipated move towards it. So then you do an absurd dash toward the ball and then you're completely crowded on the shot. It's grotesque. Amos waits beyond the baseline for the next Wallace serve. Gets a racket on that, but Amos is really starting to find his rhythm now. Wallace's return into play, the double-handed backhand from Amos. Now the forehand from the American behind the baseline. The rally continues, forehand now from Amos onto the forehand of Wallace. Looking to come down the line. The slice is played by Amos, but it finds the top of the net. Mr. Wallace needs one game to zero. Second set. Excellent play from the American there, going right, left, right, left before getting in close. The tactic works so well early on in the Franzen game for Wallace. It certainly did. And Elsa, you mentioned during the break that these two have never met before on the court, but that they've both had successes on clay surfaces and hard court surfaces. Yeah, Wallace put in a great performance at the French Open, the clay surface, sweeping aside Samuel Beckett in the final on what has become known as Beckett's home turf. And Amos succeeding at the US Open, a hard court surface against Lydia Davis. So this really does mean we should ask which of today's players will favor the grass court. We shall see.
As long as it doesn't rain today, there shouldn't be any risk of mud. We certainly hope there won't be more rain. It's, it's interesting, Elsa, this, this theme of surfaces in their writing. Absolutely. In his review of Robert Bly's novel Iron John, Amos describes the novel setting, the forest, as an Arcadia splattered with mud and blood. So maybe he'll be pleased to play on the grass here in center court, a little more sturdy underfoot, without any of that fluid splatter. The messes of an ordinary life, spills, slippages, pilings, splutterings, collisions, the material manifestations of contingency. That is a lovely phrase there, Elsa. Is that, is that one of yours? No, that's from Granular Modernism by Becky Carver, which is very apt because she talks about how Samuel Beckett and other modernists are, in her words, cooking with mud. They set themselves the task of emptying the dumpsters of waste and fatigue which accrues throughout modernity. Time. So Amos and Wallace, as literary descendants of Beckett, are also concerned with modernity's vacancy of value, where there's a risk that labor is rendered futile and the only effect is to exhaust the individual. Well, hopefully we might be able to speak with Becky Carver herself in a little while, who I can see from our commentary boxes down on courtside. But for now, we're already seeing the effect of some of that exhaustion here at the writer's final, with Wallace now serving really well, Amos seeming to struggle. The momentum during that last game just in favour of the American as they both take up position on centre court here at Wimbledon in southwest London. Amos serving onto the forehand of Wallace, now onto the forehand of Amos, forehand back from Wallace down the line. Amos tries to keep that in play, but it goes long, just... Wallace just glances up at the scoreboard and the clock, the service clock counting down, but well before it counts down to zero, Amos is serving and once again, great ace there from the Brit. He has his opponent exactly where he wants him. One more point away from a lead in the game. Amos pumps his fist with that ace there. And as we look to the royal box, we see Amos's wife, Isabel von Secker, and one of Amos's children, his daughter, Delilah. It's great to see the family out there. You know, the novelist Maureen Freely wrote that after Amos found out about the existence of Delilah, daughter from The Brief Affair. The main theme of Amos's books was all about lost children. Backhand volley from Amos. And Wallace has described the chronological setting of Infinite Jest as taking place for the next generation. He once said that, I don't have children, but I imagine our children's generation. Although it was published in 1996, Wallace sets the book 10 years ahead of time in about 2007. And this is possibly something he borrowed from Amos, whose novel London Fields was written in 1989, but set a decade later in 1999, and deals similarly with themes of children, with nuclear eschatology and with environmental disaster. As the camera pans the crowd, we see a real variety of people spectating today. And for those of you joining us on the radio, just away to the right when Wallace lifts his head to look at this ball for the service motion just over his right shoulder, the camera has just focused in on a, a row of men dressed in identical business suits, like uh, Patrick Bateman and his colleagues in American Psycho. What, what do you think, Elsa? Well, it looks to me like they're dressed as average Joes. <clears throat> Did you say average, average Joes? 
Yeah, in their suits and ties, they're paying tribute to two figures who appear in both writers' work. Joe Bloggs, or sometimes called Average Joe or Joe Briefcase. This is the standard heteronormative average citizen and consumer of mainstream culture, and both writers describe this figure. In one essay, Wallace describes trying to anticipate the tennis serve of Joe Perfect Hair. In another essay, E. Unibus Plurum, he calls the average U.S. lonely person Joe Briefcase. Likewise, when Amos is writing about his friend Christopher Hitchens' role as a literary rebel, he remarks that the position of the backstreet brawling writer is, for the most part, an invigorating and even a beguiling disposition, and makes Mr. Average, or even Mr. Above Average, whom we had better start calling Joe Laptop, seem under-evolved. And why do you think they, they create these, uh, these average Joes in their writing? So I think both authors are obsessed with this idea of normalcy, with their own status as normal average guys. If you look at the front of almost all of Wallace's books, fiction and non-fiction alike, on the acknowledgement pages you'll often find that he thanks non-literary people. There are the members of AA and Infinite Jest, or the Mr. and Mrs. Wallace Fund for Aimless Children and Girl with Curious Hair, and my own particular favorite in Brief Interviews with Hideous Men, Wallace thanks the staff and management of Denny's 24-hour family restaurant, Bloomington, Illinois. He is keen to stress his every manness. This self-positioning as one of the people places him outside the literary canon, unconstrained by scholastic boundaries. In a review of H.L. Hicks's Mortes d'Auteur, Wallace affirms the self-perception of every madness of Joe Bloggsness by writing on behalf of those of us civilians who know in our gut that writing is an act of communication between one human being and another. David Herring sees that in this implicit alignment with civilians, Wallace seeks, perhaps a little disingenuously, to position himself outside the ghastly jargon of the academy. And as for Amos, he writes nearly exclusively about the working class, or the residuum, the unworking class, as he specifies in relation to his novel Lionel Asbo. Lionel Asbo, that's that novel that takes place in a fictional district of London, probably or possibly not far from where we are right now. And why do you think Amos focuses uh, on this residuum, this unworking class? Well, I think it allows for a certain comical distortion of class-based assumptions. Take, for example, the protagonist of Lionel Asbo, Desmond Pepperdine, a teen resident of the hopeless borough of Distant Town, who shares a home with his uncle, the implacably yobbish Lionel. One chapter begins with Desmond Pepperdine being described as the Renaissance man, giving himself a course on calligraphy while living in the squalor of distant council estate. In the sense, Desmond is aspirational, wanting to move up in the world. He is the Joe in search of a briefcase. And while both players are still at the side of the court, Martin Amos just leaving the court for a moment there for a rest break and maybe some water, we can go live to Becky Carver, who is joining us now from courtside. Becky, how's the action looking where you are? Oh, it's very exciting. They seem very well matched, Amos and Wallace. I can understand why Wallace um, wanted to play Amos. They're ideal together, really. Um, and I have no idea who will win. Becky, we were discussing your book earlier, Granular Modernism, and um, Elsa was quoting the passage about the spills, slippages, pilings, splutterings, collisions of ordinary life, the material manifestations of contingency in relation to how Amos and Wallace inherit Beckett and other modernists' tendency to empty the dumpsters of waste and fatigue which accrue throughout modernity. So I guess we should ask, is their labour a futile effort? 
No, I don't think any labour is a futile effort because it fills up a life, doesn't it? Anything which fills up a life has meaning. But I do think there's a sense in which we do have to reconcile ourselves to the drabness and the ordinariness of things, to the fact that there are no grand events. But the idea comes from Camus, really, the idea that life is a matter of being encumbered by ordinary matter rather than drama and rather than an extraordinary event. And yet we are seeing a lot of drama and extraordinary action on the court today. Uh, Becky, I also wanted to ask you about your essay, Tennis as Literary Technique, in which you mention Kingsley Amis and wanted to ask, how do you think he would evaluate his son's performance on the court today? Oh, I think he would be very impressed. I think he would be very admiring of his son. And he would hope that it was his own influence that had made these feats possible, I'm sure. And in that same essay, you develop a really interesting argument about spin in the writing of both Wallace and Nabokov. And you describe the spinning of a yarn of a story as a reflection of the top spin of a tennis ball being served by the author, that it becomes necessary for us to watch the authors deceive us through spin. Yeah, I was, I was sort of interested in my position in relation to the text, really. I didn't feel quite that I was an equal participant in the way that you might feel you, you were if you were playing tennis with someone. When you read them, you feel as though you're witness to their tennis playing in the way that you might be witness to a story and you're being played upon and manipulated. So there's this bizarre imbalance whereby these balls are being spun at you in the same way that a yarn is spun in a story. And yet you're not an equal participant. You're unable to return the ball. What would that mean for a reader anyway? Are you a spectator? Not altogether, because they expect something from you. They expect quite a lot from you, actually. You mentioned earlier that one of the titles Wallace dropped for Infinite Jest was the Failed Entertainment, was it, was it that? That's it, a failed entertainment, yeah. Which is kind of wonderful, but it also kind of fits quite nicely with my, my sense of the affairs being somewhere between entertainment and something else, something more like sport, as though they were sporting with us somehow, in a game that only they are playing somehow, only they know the rules for. It's more like sparring in that way, but there's something passive about the person they're sparring against. Yeah, I like that idea. As though you were fighting someone in a dream, but your body was unable to respond or something. There's a nightmarish quality to it, which in a sense, or at least I, mean, I, th I think this is Wallace's intention, that the nightmarish quality is, um, is entangled with the fun or entangled with the jest. And so, you know, the very means by which it entertains you is a kind of torture. Likewise for Martin Amis, he says of his novel Money that the prevalence of the theme of disgust is because even the blackest writer secretly loves it all, that he is a writer fascinated with distortions and distempers, and that he doesn't sit around feeling disgusted, but rather sits around feeling entertained or even enthused, and that we as the spectating audience are enthused by his enthusiasm, ideally we are spun out by his spin. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that we shouldn't be disgusted, that disgust is there as an option, but we should be entertained and that he should be entertained. And I wonder what kind of function disgust has in that context, whether it's there as, as pure spectacle or whether there's a sense in which it really becomes a mood that you have the option of, of inhabiting at all. 
I wonder if it's the comedy that gives you distance, the distance to be entertained. But I certainly didn't feel as trapped by Amos as I do by Wallace, and I'm not sure if that reflects superior tennis on Wallace's part. I think Wallace dislikes his readers more than Amos does. I think Amos is interested in courting them. Sorry, he's a tennis pun, I suppose. He's interested in keeping people interested. There's something to me um, deeply solipsistic about Wallace's art. You know, all, all writing is communication. And so, you know, so one, of, one of the things that makes Wallace's art peculiar to me is the extent to which in the midst of being communication it shuts itself off and down and stays in its in its world i think you're absolutely right that they are hermetically sealed in that way his novels and his writing generally and this actually links to one of the images which wallace includes in infinite jest of the euclidean sphere a completely sealed spherical shape and I've noticed that in the pamphlets for today's tennis match which have been distributed to the crowd there is this image a sphere within which four other spheres rotate I wonder is this the equivalent of what you call spin within spin I think it's important about spin within spin that it should be unpicturable that it should yes resist any sort of delineation. I was I was reading back through Wallace's essays the other day and, and I was struck by his idea that if you were a really good tennis player you would be able to develop a kind of geometric instinct in relation to where the ball might land on the basis of calculations to do with the weather but also the nature of the court um, and the kind of springiness of the turf or wherever it was that you were playing on. I think fundamental to that notion of there being a kind of instinctive, on, on your feet, spontaneous geometry that you do, fundamental to that is that the idea that um, you shouldn't be able to picture anything, you shouldn't diagram anything, you should be able to do it in your head. So if there is a sphere that everything can be redescribed as, it isn't a sphere that's relevant to anything that happens in the heat of a match. There's something fundamentally retrospective about the diagram. I think that's true, and if we think of the way in which he writes those essays about his early tennis playing life, particularly I'm thinking of Tornado Alley, which I think is the one that you're referring to, he even says, it's written in the past tense, so he's, 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 he's recalling his early years, it's retrospective in that, in that regard, and he says that he, was, he played his best in bad conditions because he was able to use the wind as some kind of quasi-wind god to best his opponent, which is a slightly romantic view, I think, of his own uh, tennis-playing capacities. But what it does speak to is a sense that Wallace was aware of his weaknesses and the limitations of his tennis game and probably of his writing style as well, but that he was able to turn those inadequacies into something that he could use to his advantage, which, as you can imagine, is quite useful in a tennis match. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, you play to your strengths, don't you? I like what you were saying, too, about his 
tendency to see himself as a superhuman when he's imagining his playing. I think that sort of writing makes him happier than any, anything else, I think, writing about um, athletes at their most capable um, and writing about his own mind at its most capable. The image of Wallace as the superhero and the idea that Wallace writes certain kinds of characters who are human and more than human or an extension of, hum of the human invites us to think again about this idea of spin and this idea of the disorientation which both Wallace and Amos but also Nabokov create in their readers. They create this sense of discomfort and one of the ways they do this is with the use of doppelgangers in their stories, mirror image characters, characters who are an extension of human bodies, what we would call doubles in tennis terms. So you've got Humbert Humbert and Claire Quilty and Lolita, you've got David Wallace and David Foster Wallace in The Pale King and in Infinite Jest you've got Don Gately and Dwayne Glynn, those doppelgangers of the initials D and G. And then for Amos, he appears as a character himself in Money and in a 1997 essay called Three Stabs at Tennis, Amos begins by discussing contemporary tennis's need to create personalities and personality doppelgangers of the players themselves who, while they reflect the real, they are themselves media constructs. I thought, I'm sort of interested in doppelgangers in their work, both um, as a reference back to a very old tradition. Doppelgangers have been around forever in literature, but also as a kind of manifestation of a glitch, kind of glitch in these you know, brilliant minds. And in Wallace, um, we don't really know whether the, um, the doppelgangers are just gratuitous whimsy, whether we're supposed to take them seriously, to what extent are we supposed to incorporate them into narrative. So they have this quality of failure about them, or kind of provisionality, um, in the way, same way that something floating in your eye might, in the context of so much athletic performance, there would be scope for visual glitches and uncertainty problems with the machine. I wonder to what extent those two things go hand in hand. You know, the more you push the body, the more conscious you become of its frailties, which might simultaneously be perceived as superpowers. So they have this sort of scope for ambiguity, being able to move between failure and high achievement. Time. Ladies and gentlemen, please return to your seats. Well, on the note of failure and high achievement, Becky, can you tell us if you have a favourite for today? Who do you hope will win? Oh, um, Wallace, always. <laughs> well, the players are just about to return to the court and umpire Bovary has just called time, so Becky will have to leave you there to enjoy the rest of the match. Thank you so much for talking with us. Becky Carver. Thank you very much. It's been lovely to see you and talk to you. Time. So both of the players are ready and the audience, the average Joes, have settled their black briefcases. The Nabokovian butterflies have landed back in their seats just as Wallace hits on the forehand down the line now. The backhand from Amos. Wallace at the net will get to it, but it's wide. Yes, yeah, the ball was called wide there, so it's Amos's point. It's interesting with Amos throughout these championships, he's liked the use of the drop shot on multiple occasions, and it's a good shot, especially against a big man like Wallace, because it just dies on the grass court surface if it's executed well. It really does. Wallace just uh, having a word with the umpire there. 
high up in her tower. I should remind listeners on the radio that today's umpire is Madame Emma Bovary of Rouen, North France. Notoriously impartial lover of high society. In a nod to her husband, she is wearing his famous hat. It's more like a crown, really, a composite of bear skin and seal skin and cotton, stiffened with whalebone, with lozenges of velvet and rabbit skin. David Lipsky tells the joke. One student asks another, have you read Madame Bovary? And the other student replies, no, not personally. Both Wallace and Amos have huge admiration for Flaubert and as one of his creations, umpire Bovary will at least be in Amos's good graces as she rules in his favour in this case. So it's Love 15 with Wallace serving in front of the Royal Box. Wallace in his bandana, Amos stretching for the forehand, plays it long and Amos is one point away from delivering a real blow to Wallace's dominance so far. Elsa, what do you think? Yeah, so he's uh, looking pretty comfortable now. Martin Amos in white shirt and shorts. Wallace also in all white, but with the classic bandana and sweatbands on his wrists. Already he's wiping at his forehead, although we can't tell if that's rain or if that's sweat. Wallace is a renowned sweater. He writes that it was one of his preternatural gifts. I always sweated so much that I stayed fairly ventilated in all weathers. Sweat in his novels, in his essays. He describes being at a fairground as like being stuck in an armpit. And Amos, too, in The Pregnant Widow, has a great description of sweat on the bodies of all the young, attractive people living in an Italian castle. Sweat on their upper lips, on their brows, plump globules of sweat like strips of translucent bubble wrap. Even their sweat was plump. It gathered under their eyes like the tears of consolable five-year-olds. Glands seeped, eyes saw, hearts beat, flesh glowed. Well, southwest London certainly putting the SW in sweat. It's very hot out here today, very muggy. Um, Elsa, why do you think there is this prevalence of, of sweat in their work? I think it's always about acknowledging embodiment, always returning to first principles of physicality, which in an age of increasingly abstract interface via technology is valuable. Also, it's a way of demonstrating modernity's obsession with the working body, and what better way to demonstrate that the body is at work than to show it sweating? Sweating is, quite literally, the emitted proof of labor which modernity sees as the affirming value of the individual. Love 30 to Mr. Amis. Mr. Wallace to serve. Well, it is sweltering out here, I must say, though our main concern is if the rain returns, this game over, but for now, it remains dry as... Wallace serving single-handed, sending the ball down the line, returned by Amos, also single-handed, batted away on the edge of Wallace's racket, and it goes wide. Amos's point. You mentioning the word single-handed reminds me of one of Amos's linguistic frustrations. He hates it when writers add more syllables and words when fewer will do, and he writes that those people who like to make words longer and more polysyllabic have not noticed or do not care that single-handed is already an adverb. And there is a very famous clip of Wallace airing his frustrations about puff words, like people using utilize instead of use, or saying individual instead of person. He asks why people say prior to instead of before, and he ponders that technically, given a lot of roots, it should be posterior to. And so when people use prior or subsequent to, they're messing up in a high-level grammatical way. Good play from Wallace there, but it's still 15.30 to Amos. 
well, I won't say prior to, but certainly before it stopped raining earlier today, before Amos and Wallace returned onto the court. Elsa, you were telling me that as well as sharing frustrations over pompous and overly sesquipedalian language, both, both Wallace and Amos share an editor. Yes, both of them rely heavily on the support of Michael Peach. In the afterword to Time's Arrow, Amos gives thanks to his interlocutors who helped develop his ideas about a novel about the Holocaust, who helped his novel emerge and develop through conversation over many years. One of these interlocutors is Michael Peach, who is also Wallace's editor. Elsewhere, Amos describes the tennis matches he'd play while writing Time's Arrow. He would play a set of tennis every other day with a historian, Robert J. Lifton. And at the time, Amos was reading and then rereading Lifton's latest and most celebrated book, The Nazi Doctors. So on Monday, in between sets when they were changing ends, they would talk about sterilization and the Nazi medical vision. On Wednesday, during water breaks, they would discuss wild euthanasia, the doctors take over. On Friday, during a warm down, they talk about the Auschwitz institution. And on Sunday, it was killing with syringes, fetal injections, while they showered. One afternoon, Amos writes, during set point, Lifton served. He approached the net and wrong-footingly dispatched my attempted pass. Well, Robert Lifton is not in the crowd today, we're sorry to say, but Michael Peach is, and like any good editor whose two writers are battling out on the court, he is looking very, very neutral. Amos returning onto the backhand of Wallace, backhand down the line from Amos. Amos returning onto the backhand of Wallace, backhand down the line from Wallace. Amos leans back into that forehand and, and was stretching for that one and then couldn't get to the Wallace forehand. Mr. Wallace to serve. I wonder what Wallace the grammar Nazi would think of Amos using the term wrong-footingly there. Well, they both have a self-confessed element of that in their approach to writing. In his autobiographical novel Inside Story, Amos describes the semicolon as stately, and elsewhere he's talked about the haughty semicolon used by John Updike. And Wallace describes how he only lets a student of his use a semicolon if it is Mozart-esque. So both writers have a real respect for grammar, for, for its fragilities and its misuses. For sure. They also share a heightened awareness of the use of the footnote or endnote. For Wallace, this is so famous, he's possibly laid claim to the technique in the same way that Emily Dickinson seemingly owns the hyphen dash and Kafka with the letter K. But Amos also describes his use of the footnote, which he says helps to preserve collateral thoughts and to give the reader a clear view of the geography of a writer's mind. If the effect sometimes seems staccato, tangential, stopgo, etc., he writes, then that's what it's like on my side of the desk. And this, this heightened awareness of the structure of language gives both of them um, a real sense of how words appear on the page, doesn't it? I mean, the shape of a page of text is similar to the shape of the tennis court that's in front of us right now. Similar dimensions, similar demarcated lines. And so these two writers have a sense of how words play out, don't they? Certainly, yes. They think about how writing is produced on the page, and both of them have at times expressed an interest in being accountants of words and being aware of the implications for using a particular number of or formation of words. For instance, in his writing about the famine which was imposed on Ukraine by Stalin, Amos cites Robert Conquest's book about the terror famine, entitled The Harvest of Sorrow. 
Amos points out that each word of the book represents the death of 20 people during the famine. The book is 404 pages long, he remarks, and leaves it to the reader to work out how many lives that represents. Wallace is also aware of this in a less politically charged way. He thinks of words on the page as acrostics. For example, in The Pale King, one of the narrators explains that in his school days, he went through a sudden period where he couldn't read. He draws attention to how this habit of counting words rather than reading them affects the very structure of the story he's telling the reader. He says, I've just said 2,752 words right now since I started, meaning 2,752 words as of just before I said, I've said, versus 2,754 if you count I've said, which I do still. So here Wallace is extremely aware of how words can be read not as words, but as symbols of other sorts of data. He is taking the role of an accountant of words, processing a life's experience in the same way that the characters in The Pale King are processing a nation's data. For Amos, the words are stand-ins for a death toll. For Wallace, the words are stand-ins for something more abstract, something more aesthetic. This, Mr. Wallace to serve. And just to be an accountant for the match so far, umpire Bovary has announced that it's deuce, that's 40 all. Wallace having fought back from love 30 down on his own serve and now he's serving for the advantage. It's pretty impressive. Wallace looks to serve down the line, but Amos gets to it. Amos now returns with the forehand, keeps this in play onto the double-handed backhand of Wallace. Back onto the forehand of Amos. Now the slice from Wallace, and the ball goes wide. He's doing an excellent job of getting to that backhand side of Wallace. Wallace not being allowed to get any of his favourite shots into play at all. Advantage, Mr Amos. Oh, Wallace aces Amos there, 40 all again. Potentially a bit of mind games going on here right now on centre court. Wallace has gone over to his bag to get another racket there. It's interesting that from Amos at times it's just like he wants to overplay that drop shot. It's almost like he's saying, I want to show you that I can beat you in any manner whatsoever on the court. And that's when we have to get a little bit concerned from Amos's point of view. Yeah, it didn't come off on that occasion, so he immediately puts himself under a bit of pressure. But that's relieved by the backhand to Wallace going into the net. Amos just takes a step forward, gets ready to receive this service. From the American, backhand return onto the forehand from Amos. The slice from Wallace brings Amos into the net. He gets the ball down the line and Wallace can do nothing about it. It's on the line and it's out. A clenched fist from the British man there. You know, I wonder whether this will be challenged. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it will be. As I think Wallace will challenge this. It's a Hawkeye challenge. Yes, a Haw yeah, Hawkeye challenge here at Juice. And again, let's just wait for the results from Hawkeye. It was just out by less than a millimetre. I wonder if Amos feels at this point like a point might be stolen from him. Well, both of these writers do know about things being stolen from them. They both write about burglary. Oh, do they? Well, I mean, in London Fields, Marnamus writes perhaps one of the greatest passages ever written about the philosophy of burglary. And I suppose while that call is being checked by Hawkeye, there's time to read it out? Yeah, absolutely. Please, please do. Okay, here's the extract about burglary. Little did they know that the place they were about to burgle, 
the shop and the flat above it had already been burgled the week before. Yes, and the week before that, and the week before that, it was all burgled out. Indeed, burgling, when viewed in Darwinian terms, was clearly approaching a crisis. Burglars were finding that almost everywhere had been burgled. Burglars were forever bumping into one another, stepping on the toes of other burglars. There were burglar jams on rooftops and stairways, on groaning fire escapes. Burglars were being burgled by fellow burglars and were doing the same thing back. Burgled goods jigged from flat to flat. Returning from burgling, burglars would discover that they had been burgled, sometimes by the very burglar that they themselves had just burgled. How would this crisis in burgling be resolved? It would be resolved when enough burglars found burgling a waste of time and stopped doing it. Then, for a while, burgling would become worth doing again. But burglars had plenty of time to waste. It was all they had plenty of, and there was nothing else to do with it. So they just went on burglary. Hawkeye challenge complete there, and the point goes to Amos. Big applause all round on centre court, but maybe for your reading there too as well, Elsa. That's advantage to Martin Amos. And and while you were reading that extract from London Fields, Elsa, I was thinking that if that novel was published in 1989, I wonder if Wallace had that particular passage in mind when he wrote that scene in Infinite Jest, the one where Don Gately burgles a house and he describes the hidden knowledge he has about where stuff is hidden in almost all suburban properties. Yes, I think he quite possibly did have that passage in mind. Although the only Amos book which is listed in Wallace's personal collection was Amos's 1978 novel Success, I think we can assume that Wallace read other of Amos's work. And you're right, the burglary bit from London Fields I just read is very similar to the Gately burglary bit in Infinite Jest. Shall I read that passage too? Yeah, I, th- I think you should. And while you find the page number, I can uh, just tell our listeners that Amos has just managed to put away that Wallace serve and has managed to break the American service game now. And that's why there's such a huge round of applause in the audience. And uh, wow, what a game this is. Elsa, have you, have you found the passage? Yes, just found it. Great, so this is Elsa Canetti reading from Infinite Jest. One reason why the home of someone whose home has been burglarized feels violated and unclean is that there probably have been drug addicts in there. Don Gately was a 27-year-old oral narcotics addict and a more or less professional burglar. And he was himself unclean and violated. But he was a gifted burglar when he burgled. He was at his professional zenith. Smart, sneaky, quiet, quick, possessed of good taste and reliable transportation. Gately and associates scan for a wall safe, which, surprisingly, like 90% of people with wall safes, conceal in their master bedroom behind some sort of land or seascape painting. People turned out so identical in certain root domestic particulars and made Gately feel strange sometimes, like he was in possession of certain overlarge private facts to which no man should be entitled. Gately had a way stickier conscience about the possession of some of these large particular facts than he did about making off with other people's personal merchandise. Well, just as we were talking, members of the crowd and a number of officials were looking skywards because it seems that the clouds which we were hoping had gone for the day have actually returned and indeed have burst and the rain has really begun to fall hard again. Ladies and gentlemen, 
flight is temporarily suspended due to the weather. Heavy rain, great splatterings on centre court and umpire Bovary has just uttered the immortal words which, yes, has triggered the ball boys and ball girls who are already rushing to pull the tarpaulin across the sacred grass and both Amos and Wallace are ducking under umbrellas. The crowd also is running for cover. Well, that's a real shame, isn't it, Elsa? It is a shame, but in a way it's fitting. Yeah, why is that? Because it lets us conclude on a poetical note. Both Wallace and Amos loved the writing of Philip Larkin, and during the last rain break, I found a collection of his poems at the Wimbledon Central Library. Oh, great. That's brilliant. What have you got for us? Well, Zadie Smith said that in a list of favorite writers Wallace gave her, Larkin was the only poet. And in a lecture about Philip Larkin, Martin Amos explains that rain as an element and an ambiance provides a backdrop to Larkin's life, to this very English story. Larkin felt marriages turned into rain. Rain was what love and desire eventually became. In his poem, The Wits on Weddings, Philip Larkin portrays a train journey headed towards London. He's sitting there in a leathery steamed carriage and the poet witnesses the aftermath of wedding parties as, at every stop, the train fills up with fresh couples who are each about to begin their honeymoons and the rest of their lives. And as London approaches as the poem nears its end, Larkin concludes with the following lines. And it was nearly done, this frail traveling coincidence, and what it held stood ready to be loosed with all the power that being changed can give. We slowed again, and as the tightening brakes took hold, there swelled a sense of falling, like an arrow shower sent out of sight, somewhere becoming rain. Beautiful. And how English of us to conclude our coverage by quoting that most drizzly of English poets, Philip Larkin, as we say goodbye from the commentary box here on Centre Court. That's it from us for the time being. From rainy Wimbledon in rainy England, we say thanks for listening and you'll be able to rejoin us once the rain has stopped. But for now, it's back to you in the studio.